0: I wanted to go back and uh, revisit one little thing from our discussion of Whitfield and Wesley before we moved on, because last week when we were talking a little bit about um, the marriage of John Wesley to Mary Vazile, I didn't really have a lot of detail in terms of exactly what had happened and all of that, and I, I found some things. Uh, since then that I wanted to share with you because I think it's instructive for us. I think there's a lesson here for us and one that I think it's important for us to take away from all of this. So You may or may not remember from last time that uh, John Wesley had been in love with this uh, woman named Grace Murray and actually his brother Charles and also George Whitfield had been involved in making sure that they didn't get married. Because Charles, even though he was married, was convinced that his brother John's ministry would be harmed if he was married. And so Charles took it upon himself to make sure his brother didn't get married. Um, the uh, I found a dictionary on, um, this is on the Christian Classics Ethereal Library. This is about John Wesley. The Eclectic Ethereal Encyclopedia. But it's a, an encyclopedia of biographies this one has to do with john wesley and if we skip down just a little bit it talks about that situation with grace murray says uh wesley had published in 1743 his thoughts on marriage and celibacy and and this is john wesley had given a preference to the latter celibacy his opinion was modified by a discussion at a conference in june 1748 he got sick And He was nursed for for four days by this woman, Grace Murray, who was then in charge of his orphan house there in in Newcastle. Uh, Wesley proposed marriage to her, and she did not refuse, even though, as it goes on to explain, she was already engaged to a guy named John Bennett. Having convinced herself that this engagement was not binding, Or having convinced her that this engagement was not binding, John Wesley, in April 1749, took her to Ireland, employed her there in religious work, and before leaving Dublin in July, became contracted to her there. So she was already engaged to another Methodist pastor. Wesley convinced her it wasn't a binding agreement. And so then she got engaged to John Wesley. She resumed correspondence with Bennett in a groundless fit of jealousy about... A young lady named Molly Francis for some weeks while accompanying Wesley on his journeys was on and off with Bennett. So anyway, Wesley learning this and assured by Grace that she loved him best would neither give her up nor consent to an immediate marriage. So on September 7th, he wrote to Bennett claiming Grace as his own. He sent a copy of the letter to Charles Wesley. So John Wesley writes John Bennett and says, look, I'm going to marry this girl back off. Uh, he sends a copy to his brother Charles. When Charles gets this, Charles interferes, calls on the aid of Whitfield, who seems to have acted against his own judgment as expressed to Wesley. In their presence, Mrs. Murray was married to Bennett at St. Andrews, Newcastle on October 3rd, 1749. So Charles essentially engineered a wedding in which this young lady Grace Murray got married to John Bennett instead of getting married to John Wesley. So that's a little bit of the context behind Wesley's comments here where he talks about as though he feels as if he was betrayed by his own close friends and how the fatal, irrecoverable stroke was struck on Thursday last. That's a reference to the wedding that had been engineered by his brother and his friend George Whitfield, but it was mainly Charles who was behind all of this. Now, a few years later, then, John Wesley gets married to Mary Vaziel, and as we talked about last time, that marriage was not a good marriage. I found a. Let's see if I can. There it is. I found an article written by a man named John Singleton. This was published by the United Methodist News Service. And it talks a little bit about John Wesley's marriage to Mary Vazille. And and this is the part I really wanted to focus on because this is where I think the lesson really is for us. He says this, The saga of John Wesley's marriage is a cautionary tale from the roots of Methodism that ought to resonate today with with any couple so involved in church life that they fail to leave enough space for each other. In other words, anybody who is so involved in ministry that they don't make time for their marriage. Wesley and Mary Vazile, a well-to-do widow and mother of four children, were married in 1751. By 1758, she had left him, unable to cope, it is said, with the competition for his time and devotion presented by the ever-burgeoning Methodist movement. In other words, she felt like her husband was actually married to his ministry and not to her. Molly, as she was known, was to return and leave him again on several occasions before their final separation. In January 1771, Wesley wrote in his journal that for what cause, I know not to this day. His wife had set out for Newcastle, purposing never to return. This prompted him to note in Latin, I did not desert her. I did not send her away. I will not ask her to return. Kind of an interesting comment. Uh, Ten years later, in October 1781, Wesley was returning to London from a visit to the Isle of Wight and was told that his wife had died four days earlier. It was a rather sad sequel to a relationship which, some would say, had everything stacked against it almost from the word go. With the unremitting demand of the Methodist movement on its founder's presence and energy pitted against a wife and mother jealous of her husband's time, something just had to give. And then he goes on to discuss that early on their relationship was good. And uh, so then skipping down a little bit. After only three months into their marriage, Wesley seems to have been troubled by the increasingly jealous disposition of his wife. Quote, my wife, upon all supposition that I did not love her and that I trusted others more than her, had often fretted herself almost to death, he wrote. Wesley talked with her about it, and by the blessing of God, the cloud vanished away and we were united as at the beginning. Sadly, the cloud was to return on many occasions. When family commitments allowed, Molly accompanied Wesley on some of his travels, on other occasions he tried to boost her confidence by telling her how people were inquiring about her, and so on. Next paragraph. Gradually, however, the gap between husband and wife widened emotionally and physically until they reached the point of no return. If you have the opportunity to visit Wesley's chapel in London, you will see among the artifacts in Wesley's house, his bureau, complete with hidden compartments. It was here, at this very piece of furniture, that Molly read some of her husband's letters to his dear sisters and misinterpreted and misconstrued their often affectionate and florid language. And so the fires of jealousy were fueled. It is a sad episode, but at least it brings home to us the humanity of Wesley. On this occasion and others, the founder of Methodism reveals some of the inner turmoil taking place behind his relentless regime of travel, pastoral work, and preaching. And then this final line, there must be a lesson there for many of us. So I, I thought that was a helpful article written by a Methodist, published in a Methodist um, newspaper, And one which I I hope sinks in a little bit, the reality that we are called to be husbands before we are called to be pastors. That the priority, the God-given priority, is to our marriage and our family before it is to our ministry. And you know, you you can lose your ministry and keep your marriage, but you can't lose your marriage and keep your ministry. So... It's a good lesson from the life of John Wesley for us to consider. And I don't share this with you because I'm trying to throw John Wesley under the bus. God used John Wesley to do some incredible things at this time during the evangelical revival in England. But at the same time, it's just its just a sad reminder that when these kinds of things happen, it does taint your ministry and it does taint your reputation. Yep, Cameron.
1: Just looking at the years, I'm just trying to figure out that so it's um, Wesley's like fairly old when this is happening. It seems. Mm-hmm. Is that right? So, like when it said about him writing that thing on celibacy, or whatever, that he was about forty, I think. I think he's,
0: yeah, so he was born he was, in seventeen o three, and right on, he wrote that work on celibacy in seventeen forty three. So yes, yeah, 40, right around forty old. years old.
1: And he's uh. Writing that, so that's that's really amazing. That uh, so this was quite late on that all this took place in his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, just didn't know that. Yeah.
0: yeah, there. I mean, there's a lot of kind of interesting intricacies to all of this that you know seem un- to be unfortunate distractions from the gospel work that these men were involved in. The whole thing with Charles and George, and I mean, the whole thing is just kind of um, seems a, a little bit strange. What would have been
1: the common practice among those awakening churches with separation up there? His wife has abandoned him. Um, would they do a letter of divorce? Would they just? he just would not remarry, it would just go on like that. What would you think <coughs>
0: that Yeah, my understanding is that with this particular case, because there was no divorce, it was just kind of a permanent separation, that John Wesley, he never did remarry. There's no indication of any unfaithfulness in the sense of adultery on John Wesley's part, nothing like that, just more of a emotional neglect And so, my understanding is that his ministry just kind of continued, and he was focused on his ministry, and his wife went and lived somewhere else. I mean, it's even sad to read the fact that he didn't even know she had died until four days afterwards. Yeah, it is sad, um, but I I hope that there's a lesson in there for us, just a reminder uh, that um, we need to be faithful in our ministry, yes, but faithfulness in our ministry starts with faithfulness in the home, as the Apostle Paul makes clear in his qualifications for eldership. That he who is going to lead in the house of God must start by leading his own household well, and that certainly starts with shepherding and loving and caring for your wife. Yep. Curiosity, when you said that uh, his brother in Woodfield didn't want to get married because felt it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be upon or it would take away his ministry. Do we know anything
1: about why they felt that? Was it just because they felt, were they going off Paul and probably said it's
0: easier if not married? Or was there something about his character? They felt like he couldn't handle the emotional, Very sure. Whitfield and his brother, were they married? Well, Charles was definitely married. I don't know offhand if George Whitfield was married or not. He was. Okay. So, yes, both Charles and George did they were married. Think that Charles just, uh, Is that just that John couldn't handle it? I don't know um, the, the details decent. on that. Uh, so need to look into were it all further. they like, oh, it's not good. But they're like, oh, you particularly are, you know, can't handle a wife. Yeah, I'm not sure. My, my, initial, my initial thought was that it was probably due to the burdens of this new ministry that John Wesley was really administrating, and he was traveling so much. Uh, that the administrative burdens would have proven to be very difficult in marriage. And in fact, that is exactly what happened. But there's also that whole history with Sophie Hopke back in Georgia when John Wesley was there. And I don't know if they saw something in terms of what they considered to perhaps be a pattern that they were a little bit um, wary of. Uh, I'm just not sure. So I'm going to incorporate some of this stuff in more detail into future iterations of the PowerPoint so that, um, so that future classes, uh, it's a little bit more streamlined. But I, I just wanted to go back because I think that's a really important lesson for us to be reminded of in the midst of seminary and everything else. And then you get out of seminary and you're in the midst of ministry and it's great and it's growing and there's lots happening. Uh, just don't forget to neglect your primary priorities at home. Okay, we transition from the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, to talk about Jonathan Edwards, and this, of course, is concurrent with what we've just been discussing about the Wesleys and Whitfield. This, though, focuses primarily on the Great Awakening in New England, rather than the Evangelical Revival in England. John and Charles Wesley, though they made one trip to the colony of Georgia, They spent most of their time in England, organizing the budding Methodist movement there in England. George Whitfield, though he was born in England, was the one who made constant trips back and forth between England, Old England, and New England. He made a total of seven visits to the colonies, and he actually died on that seventh visit while he was preaching in New Hampshire. George Whitfield met Jonathan Edwards and... Seems to have had an impact on Edwards' preaching style and ministry. Edwards certainly had an impact on George Whitfield's theology, and together these two men are considered really the key figures in the great. Awakening, which is what we call the Evangelical Revival on American soil. Now this is before the United States of America has been established as an independent nation, so we're talking about colonial America at this point. The Great Awakening takes place during the colonial period in American history. Some have argued, and I think with good reason, that Jonathan Edwards is perhaps the greatest theological mind that America has ever produced. The irony is that this is before the United States of America, so we have really a British citizen on American soil who many consider to be the greatest American theologian. All right, so let's just talk a little bit about Jonathan Edwards' life and impact, and we're going to see if we can get through the entirety of this PowerPoint presentation today. Then we can move on to the Second Great Awakening on Thursday. He's born in October of 1703, just a few months after John Wesley was born. Wesley, also born in 1703, though in different parts of the world, of course. Jonathan Edwards was born in East Windsor, Connecticut. He was the son of a Congregationalist Puritan pastor, Timothy Edwards, and the grandson of one of the most famous Puritan pastors in New England at that time, man named Solomon Stoddard. Solomon Stoddard you might remember was the one uh, whom we discussed just briefly associated with the halfway covenant. The halfway covenant was a way in which the Puritans in New England included unconverted people in the church there in New England because there were so many in this Kind of subsequent generations of Puritans there in New England who were apathetic and lethargic about things regarding the gospel. So, in the same way that there needed to be a revival in Old England because of Enlightenment influences on the Anglican Church, there needed to be a revival now in New England because apathy and lethargy had seeped into the descendants of the Puritans in terms of their outlook on life and their commitment to. To Christ, We have a lot of people who are nominally Christian, but they've never been converted. Of course, this is a paedo-baptist society, so you have people who have been baptized as infants, but they've grown up as adults, and they've never truly embraced Christ in saving faith. Solomon Stoddard said, hey, we need to evangelize these people. How are we going to do it? Let's keep them in the church. And so the halfway covenant allowed people who had been baptized as babies to retain church membership, even though they weren't converted. This is going to pose problems for Jonathan Edwards down the road, and that's why we're taking time to explain it. Jonathan was the only son of 11 children, so he had 10 sisters, and he was the only boy. And his family actually was noted for being uh, quite tall at that period of time. His sisters, I think it's Marsden who brings this out, his sisters were on average about six feet tall, which is actually still quite tall. And people in their church joked about how Timothy Edwards had sixty feet of daughters, because he had ten daughters who were all quite tall. And and in the midst of this sixty feet of daughters there's one son and that's Jonathan. So you you can imagine growing up in a household with ten sisters and you're the only boy. He received an excellent education from his parents He showed great mental acumen at a young age, and he entered Yale College in 1716 when he was almost 13 years of age. Now, Yale had actually started in 1702, just the year before Jonathan Edwards was born, and uh, while it is true that uh, this, I think Jonathan Edwards was somewhat on the young side to go to college, people at this time period did go to college really during the high school age years. So it wasn't like everybody else is going at 18 and 19 and he's going at age 12. Um, I think most people went around 13, 14, 15 in in that age range. But you did have to know Latin and uh, some of the other classical languages in order to go to college so the education system was definitely a little bit more robust than at least it is in the public school system that exists in our own day. In 1720 he graduated at the head of his class. Here are some of the important places in Jonathan Edwards life. So we have East Windsor, Connecticut there where he was born. Uh, New Haven where he went to school there at Yale. Uh, Northampton, Massachusetts, up at the north part of the map is where he's going to spend most of his life as the pastor of his grandfather's church. When his grandfather Solomon Stoddard dies, Jonathan Edwards becomes the senior pastor there. He spends 20 years or so at that church. He will then, after that, go and live in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which is on really the frontier at that time and then from there he'll eventually travel down to Princeton, New Jersey in order to become the president of the school in New Jersey which today we call Princeton University. Uh, Because he was a president at Princeton any of the pictures that I get from Princeton's archive will have the president title affixed to Jonathan Edwards name. So this is the house that Jonathan Edwards grew up in, the birthplace of president, Jonathan Edwards. Well that's because it's from Princeton's archive. (laughs) And there's East Windsor, Connecticut today. Yale College in 1718. It was while he was at college, in fact during his last year of college when he was 16 years old, that Edwards Experienced a, a violent illness and he thought he was going to die. And there's nothing quite like thinking you're going to die that makes you consider your eternal destiny. And God used that violent illness to cause Edwards to embark on really several years two or two and a half years, maybe even three years of deep introspection and spiritual struggle. And in keeping with kind of that Puritan theology of conversion, where it's more of this elongated process than just a momentary decision, Edward saw this period of struggle as his conversion. One of the things he was particularly struggling with was the doctrine of God's sovereignty. He didn't like the doctrine of God's sovereignty initially. He bristled against it. Uh, We actually have many times in church history where we have some of the most ardent defenders of God's sovereignty who initially are opposed to it. George Mueller is another great example of someone who was opposed to the doctrines of grace and then came to love and champion the doctrines of grace when he really understood the biblical teaching and truth behind those doctrines. As part of this conversion process, as part of this struggle, Jonathan Edwards comes to see the doctrine that he initially opposed or at least felt uncomfortable with, he comes to see it as actually the fountainhead of all of his theology. So he views God's sovereignty then as a lovely doctrine rather than a hateful one. And this was an intellectual breakthrough, really the result of the Spirit regenerating his heart and changing his life and changing his perspective. And this changes his entire life. And so Much like John Calvin, who sees God's sovereignty as the fountainhead of every aspect of theology, Jonathan Edwards likewise will see God's sovereignty in everything as the fountainhead for all of his theological reasonings. As a very young man, uh, when again, he's born in 1703, so in 1722 he's 19 years old, 1723 he's 20 years old. He wrote up a list of 70 resolutions that he wanted to keep as evidence of his conversion. Now, it's important to understand that Jonathan Edwards saw these not as the means of his conversion. He believed that he was justified by faith or by grace through faith in Christ. But he saw these resolutions as the fruit of a life that had been transformed. You're probably all familiar with Edward's resolutions. And I just want to read some of these resolutions to you because I think it's instructive for us. And I think it's actually compelling and motivating to consider that someone maybe as early as 18, certainly 19, 20, uh, 20 years old, is writing such profound resolutions. And the resolutions are intended not to be a legalistic form of behavior modification, but rather as an expression of his desire to please Christ in everything. I think if you see them in that light, you come to appreciate what it is that Edwards is trying to do. He says, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. And then his first resolution, which is not one of the numbered 70, is remember to read these resolutions once a week. So this is practical stuff. I think it's also important to remember that Edwards didn't write these to be published. He wrote these for his own personal diary, and uh, then they were subsequently published um, uh, a long time later. And so I think it's helpful for us to re- to remember that Edwards wasn't writing these thinking... People throughout history were going to be reading them. But in any case, he says, resolved that I will do whatever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence, resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general, and resolved to do this whatever difficulties I meet with, how many soever and how great soever. So he's committed, first and foremost, to God's glory. But you'll notice there in that second line of that resolution that he includes in his commitment to God's glory a commitment to his own good, profit, and pleasure. And that's because Jonathan Edwards articulates the principle that his greatest pleasure would come from seeking to glorify God in everything. And of course, in our own day, Pastor John Piper has Brought to us that really that heartbeat of Jonathan Edwards' thinking that those who uh, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him that we derive our greatest good by seeking His highest honor all of that comes from Jonathan Edwards we see inklings of it here even in his resolutions. Resolved, to be continually endeavoring to find out some new contrivance and invention to promote the aforementioned things. In other words, I want to do everything I can to keep these resolutions. Resolved, if I ever shall fall and grow dull so as to neglect to keep any part of these resolutions, to repent when I come to myself again. Resolved, never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God nor be nor suffer it if I can avoid it. So he wants to do everything for God's glory. Resolve never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolve to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins, or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. So this is a way of humbling himself. Resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying. Resolved when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. So you can see here a a commitment to God's glory and an eternal perspective in all things. So he would have been, the date there, July 30th, indicates that this was before his 19th birthday. So he would have been 18 years old when he's writing this. Resolved when I think of any theorem in divinity to be solved immediately to do what I can towards solving it. I like that one. That's a good seminary resolution. Resolved if I take delight in it as a gratification of pride immediately to throw it away. That's also a good seminary resolution. Resolve to be endeavoring to find out fit objects of charity and liberality. Resolve never to do anything out of revenge. Resolve never to suffer the least motions of anger. Resolve never to speak evil of anyone. Resolve that I will, that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. It's a great resolution to think about what you want your life to be like when you come to the end. Resolve to live so at all times as I think is best in my devout frames when I have clearest notions of the gospel and of heaven. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it would be less than an hour before I should hear the last trumpet. Resolve to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. And then 21, this is as far as my list goes. Resolve never to do anything which I should see in another and I should count a just occasion to despise him for it or to think any way more meanly of him or less of him. So, this is Jonathan Edwards' resolutions to make the most of his life, to make the most of his time, to avoid anything that would dishonor God or bring shame on himself, and to live every moment for the glory of God. And, uh, you know, I think in that respect, Jonathan Edwards is a great example to us of one whose heart desire was to. Live out his new life as a new creature in Christ in a way that was consistent with the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that's really what those resolutions are. They are applications, expressions of the way in which he wants to live out those principles. But I want to bring a little bit of balance to Jonathan Edwards' resolutions just for a moment, because I think on the one hand, it is very helpful for us to be motivated to see his commitment and his resolve and to say, I want to be resolved in those same ways, even if the application maybe looks a little bit different in the 21st century. But George Marsden brings some balance here to us by saying, you know, it's one thing to make such a thorough and impressive list of resolutions. It's another to keep them. And you guys all know that from the New Year's resolutions that maybe you make every year and probably by this time have forgotten even what they were. This we know from his diary, in which he reported his efforts fairly regularly for the next year or two. Although he noted the spiritual highs that he later recalled, his diary also records many days of lows, decays, and lengthy times of inability to focus on spiritual things. So. Jonathan Edwards is something of a hero when we look at his resolutions, but he's also very human when we look at his diary in the years following his resolutions, where, you know, just like any normal Christian, he struggled in the process of progressive sanctification. Uh, it was about a year ago or so, uh, this is from this last year because I reposted it. But I did a little bit more digging into Jonathan Edwards and Broken Resolutions because I think it's encouraging. I, I'm not trying to tear down Jonathan Edwards, he's one of my heroes in church history, but I do want to I do want to humanize him just a little bit because I think sometimes we can look at these heroes in church history and we can think, man, those guys, you know, we we don't like John Wesley's view of entire sanctification that you can somehow reach perfection in this life. But sometimes we almost apply that standard to some of our historical heroes, and we think that, man, they, they never struggled in their Christian life. So I think it's encouraging to see Jonathan Edwards' resolutions as expressions of heartfelt desires to honor God, and then also to know that he really struggled to try and keep those resolutions. And so here we have an example from Edwards' diary. This last week I was sunk so low that I fear it will be a long time before I am recovered, I fell exceedingly low in the weekly account of my resolutions. I find my heart so deceitful that I am almost discouraged from making any more resolutions. Wherein have I been negligent in the week past, and how could I have done better to help the dreadful low estate in which I am sunk? I mean, it you know, sounds like Romans seven, right? The the Christian life being a struggle uh, between desires to please the Lord and the temptations of the flesh. Uh, in his diary, Edwards explained that the key to his spiritual vitality was not the mere making of resolutions, but rather a full dependence on the spirit and grace of God. And so here's what he says. I find by experience that let me make resolutions and do what I will with never so many inventions. It is all nothing and to no purpose at all without the motions, without the work of the Spirit of God there must be no dependence on myself our resolutions may be at the highest one day and yet the next day we may be in a miserable dead condition not at all like the same person who resolved so that it is no purpose to resolve except that we depend on the grace of God for if it were not for his mere grace one might be a very good man one day and a very wicked one the next so anyway I I won't read all of that but if you're interested You can find that blog article in the Cripplegate about Jonathan Edwards and his broken resolutions. And again, I, I share it with you not to demean Jonathan Edwards, but rather to hopefully encourage you a little bit in recognizing that this was a man who deeply loved the Lord, who had been genuinely and radically converted just a few years earlier, and yet his struggle with sin was very real. All right, there's New Haven, Connecticut today, and uh, Yale University. From 1722 to 24, so he's still a very young man, Jonathan Edwards served as pulpit supply at small churches in New York and in Connecticut. So he's only 19 years old, 19, 20 years old when he's doing this. From 1724 to 26, so 21 to 23 years old, he works as a tutor at Yale College. And then in 1727, so February of 1727, he would have been 23 years old. He's ordained as an assistant minister to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. Solomon Stoddard is the pastor of one of the largest churches in New England, one of the best known ministers. And here he brings on his 23-year-old grandson to be his assistant pastor and that same year then Jonathan Edwards got married to Sarah Pierpont Sarah Edwards in 1729 and so he's only 25 years old his grandfather dies and Jonathan Edwards suddenly becomes the senior pastor of one of the most important churches in New England at the age of only 25 years old. I'm mentioning the ages because I think it's encouraging to young guys in seminary who feel inadequate because they're young to know that God uses, at times, really young people to do um, important work in ministry. And you know, go back to what Paul told Timothy, to not be, to not let others look down on your youthfulness. Here's Jonathan Edwards' comment on Sarah Pierpont. This is when he first met her. Um, I like this because it's a very Puritan way of expressing his affection for this young lady who he's just met. So he says this, They say there is a young lady in New Haven who is loved of that great being who made and rules the world and that there are certain seasons in which this great being in some way or other invisible comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight. So in other words, there's a girl that God loves her and she loves God. And that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him, that she expects after a while to be received up where he is, to be raised up out of the world and caught up into heaven, being assured that he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him always. There she is to dwell with him and to be ravished with his love and delight forever. So again, we're seeing the theme of delighting in the Lord, which which really is the theme of Edward's devotional life and one of the things that makes him such a a wonderful voice in church history. Therefore, if you present all the world before her with the riches of its treasures, she disregards it and cares not for it and is unmindful of any pain or affliction. She has a strange sweetness in her mind and singular purity in her affections. It's most just and conscientious in all her conduct. And you could not persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful if you would give her all the world, lest she should offend this great being. She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, universal benevolence of mind, especially after this great God has manifested himself to her mind. She will sometimes go about from place to place singing sweetly and seems to be always full of joy and pleasure and no one knows for what. She loves to be alone, walking in the fields and groves, and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. So, you know, I I made light of it a little bit, but really... Edwards here is noting the spiritual vitality of this young lady, Sarah Pierpont, and that is what a, he finds so incredibly attractive. And they have a great marriage. In fact, there's a, uh, there's a fun little book um, which you can give to your wives, and they'll appreciate it, and you'll know why as soon as I tell you the title. fun little book called Marriage to a Difficult Man. So you can give that to your wife and, and you can say, here honey, this this is for you about me. But but it's actually about Sarah Edwards and her marriage to Jonathan Edwards. And it's not that Jonathan Edwards was a difficult man. He really wasn't. It's that he was, you know, this brilliant theologian and churchman. And here Sarah Edwards is called to be a pastor's wife. And um, it's it's kind of a fun recounting of their marriage. Uh, so anyway, i recommend that book to you. They actually had a really really good marriage and in many ways Sarah Edwards was uh, brilliant in her own right. She was an intellectual counterpart and partner to her husband Jonathan. I have an excerpt here from a sermon preached by Solomon Stoddard. I wanted to include this because we talk about Solomon Stoddard in the halfway covenant it makes it sound like Stoddard was nothing more than a compromiser who wanted to keep people in his church. Uh, I don't think that's really a fair perspective. I think Stoddard, again, you have to realize that he's operating within a covenantal structure, and within the covenantal structure, keeping people in the church is about keeping them within the covenant community. And uh, while they recognize that not all Israel is Israel, they think that they are the new Israel, and so they're just trying to keep people plugged in. So it's a little bit of a different perspective. I'm not endorsing that perspective. I'm just explaining that that's the perspective that Stoddard was coming from. As a result, he wants to keep people in the church, who have been baptized as babies, even if he is not convinced that they are actually converted, and then he's going to preach evangelistic sermons to them in the hope that they are converted in that process. Now, I think that's all backwards. That's a bad ecclesiology, but it explains a little bit of the thinking that Stoddard was operating on. So here's a little bit of a sermon from him, one of these evangelistic sermons where he's preaching against hypocrisy. He's preaching against people who are claiming to be Christians and going to church, even if they're not really saved. Godliness, and he's using the term godliness here as an equivalent for salvation. So godliness in the sense of people who have been saved. Godliness is a thing of great concern. The acceptance of services, the hearings of prayers, the salvation of the soul depends upon it and because it is a godliness in the sense of conversion and because it is of such moment or importance the comfort of men much depends upon the knowledge that they've actually been converted but there is a great deal of darkness in the minds of men about it many times converted men godly men have scruples doubts and sometimes great fears that they are not godly they often sit in judgment on themselves and are at a loss what sentence to pronounce And some ungodly men have great hopes that they are in a good estate and steal comforts that do not belong to them. Some cannot see their way to condemn themselves, and some give judgment for themselves. But the apostle John here directs the one sort and the other in the determination of their condition. First he tells us how a godly man may know his godliness. How do you know you've actually been converted? He who sees the workings of the grace of love in himself He who sees more or fewer actings of that grace may conclude for himself that he is born of God, has had a work of regeneration, that the gospel has had a saving efficacy on his heart, that he has the spiritual knowledge of God, and that his eyes have been opened to see the glory of God. So in other words, you can know that you've been saved, you've been converted, if you look at your life and you see the fruit of a changed life, the fruit of a changed heart in the way that you live. Second, the Apostle John tells us how hypocrites may know their hypocrisy. He who does not love, who lives in the omission of love, who has nothing of the working of that spirit, who lives in the neglect of it, has not the spiritual knowledge of God, whatever pretenses he makes, this casts the case against him. The like we may say with respect to every other grace. He who believes on Jesus Christ, who loves God, who has godly sorrow, who is born of God. But he who does not believe in Christ, who does not love God, who has not godly sorrow, who knows not God, he, he doesn't know God whatever professions he might make. Uh, this is important for us to understand because this is the historical and biblical way of assessing your true spiritual condition. Salvation is by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. So look at your life and tell me, are the fruits of repentance and the fruit of the Spirit operative in your life? if they are they are indications that you have been regenerated if they're not no matter what profession you may make it is evidence that you have not been regenerated it's very different than the way that many typical American evangelicals would approach this today's American evangelicalism would say have you made a decision have you made a profession have you prayed a prayer signed a card walked an aisle that's how you determine whether or not you've been converted. But before the Second Great Awakening, that was completely alien to Christian thought. Decisionism was not the mark of true conversion. A changed life was the mark of true conversion. And that's something that you can't determine in a moment. It is something that requires a lifetime of practice to be able to ascertain. All right, uh, here's just some pictures to kind of get a sense of what colonial America was like during this time. So New Amsterdam was actually uh, settled by Dutch reformed settlers before it was taken over, conquered by the British, and the name was changed to New York. And so then you have the population growing in New York. Here's Northampton, Massachusetts today. This is the place where uh, Solomon Stoddard and Jonathan Edwards ministered there's northampton in the 1870s and us the church uh, which today is a totally liberal church but there's the church where jonathan edwards pastored and a similar new england town in the 1700s gives you an idea of what things would have been like at that time period yep cameron Um, have
1: you visited um edwards church
0: i have not i've I've never been to that part of New England, sadly enough. I saw
1: the picture. I was interested in it. if the church that where a great preacher like Edwards preached, I see the sign there, it goes extremely liberal. I just wonder um, what what uh, respect they show towards that person, and also how if they revise uh, who they are. I I noticed in Denmark, for example, when I was there, that in the Methodist Church there, they'd completely historically revised John Wesley into someone else. And so I just wonder if a place like that, what they would do if they totally distance themselves from Edwards, or if they change who he was, or if they just
0: yeah, they probably treat Edwards as a great historical figure, a great intellectual and philosophical figure. And uh, someone who's well known even in American literature uh, here in the United States, in our public school system, in eleventh grade, every high school student reads part of "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God." So everybody knows who Jonathan Edwards is. At least they've heard of him. And he was, you know, the, one of the presidents at Princeton. In fact, I think there's a dorm that named after him, or there's stuff on campus named after him at Princeton. But you know, nobody cares about the spiritual legacy that he left behind. So that's completely ignored, and they just kind of say, "Yeah, you know, he was a he was a prominent figure in his time, and so he's honored as a historical figure, but not as a spiritual leader." Making
1: people, I didn't know that, but making people read his sermons, in the Handsome Negro Guy," does that just just evoke hatred for the guy among the general public? Does,
0: I think so. I think it contributes to the American public's um, stereotype of Puritanism. That it was fire and brimstone kind of preaching all the time. That these were grim, unhappy people who wore black everywhere. Because that was an expression of how they felt about life. And they were angry and vengeful. And, uh, you know... The sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is a masterful sermon. We'll read part of it in this lecture. But I do wish that they balanced it out in the American literature books by letting, letting the students read one of Edward's other sermons. He actually preached on heaven more than he preached about hell, but that's not the impression that high school students are given. Now, having said that, I don't know of any examples, but it is possible that some students are actually saved. By reading that, they're certainly forced to consider the implications of eternity for at least one day in their public high school career. Alright, there's Edwards' home in Northampton. All right, Edwards is preaching on the sovereignty of God, and so he's preaching against Arminianism Preached a sermon entitled God Glorified in Man's Dependence, which taught that God alone exercises sovereign independence in all things in terms of his will. 1733, we begin to have revival breaking out in Northampton through Edwards's preaching. The revival spreads, and in 1739, we have really the Great Awakening, which lasts from 1739 till 1741. So it's really only two to three years of time. But it's preceded by this Northampton revival and there's certainly after effects. So we could say that the Great Awakening more or less encompasses the 1730s and 1740s. But if you want a specific date range, 1739 to 1741. During this time, of course, Edwards meets George Whitfield. It's in 1739 that Whitfield makes that second trip to the American colonies where he preaches in Philadelphia and Ben Franklin does his experiment and everything else. That's the beginnings, really, of this uh, regional revival. It, it is largely regionalized to New England in these areas where the Puritan church in New England is revived. In 1741, Edwards preaches sinners in the hands of an angry God. He preached it in Enfield, Connecticut. That's where it was famously preached. And we had people, upon hearing the words that Edwards was saying, groaning under the weight of them, people crying out loud, a great emotional response, and many conversions as a result of this preaching. All right, I'm going to skip that quote and read a little bit from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, this is just kind of an overview. There, there were observations from Deuteronomy 32:28 and Psalm 73:18 to 19. And just some comments here. This comes from Edward's sermon. There is no want or power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. So God could send you to hell anytime he wants. They deserve to be cast into hell so that divine judgment never stands in the way. It makes no objection against God using his power at any moment to destroy sinners. They are already under a sentence of condemnation to hell. They are now the objects of the very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in hell. The devil stands ready to fall upon them and sees them as his own if God would allow that to happen. There are in the souls of wicked men those hellish principles reigning that would presently kindle the flame out kindle and flame out into hell fire if it were not for God's restraints. It's no security to wicked men for one moment that there is no visible means of death at hand. So hell is real, you deserve to go there and you could die at any moment. That's the thesis of this sermon. Natural men's prudence and care to preserve their own lives or the care of others to preserve them doesn't secure them a moment. So you can try and avoid death, but it doesn't mean you actually can escape it. All wicked men's pains and contrivances they use to escape hell while they continue to reject Christ and so remain wicked men, that doesn't spare them from hell. And number 10, God has laid himself under no obligation by any promise to keep any natural, sinful, unsaved, unregenerate person out of hell for one moment. So, God can send you to hell anytime He wants. You deserve to go there. It would be just for Him to send you there. And uh, your attempts to avoid going there and avoid your own death ultimately mean nothing. The only rescue, of course, is Christ. That was the point of the sermon. So, here's just an excerpt from it. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. Reminds me actually of an Easter sermon that John MacArthur preached several Easter's ago on uh, the fact that God is your enemy. (laughs) It's kind of an interesting choice of a sermon for uh, Easter Sunday, but we have all these unsaved people coming here to Grace Community Church, and most Easter sermons are about how God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. So MacArthur preached a sermon on how God hates you and has a terrible plan for your future unless you repent that God is your enemy and he stands opposed against you. Well, that's essentially what Edward's sermon here was about. God's wrath towards you burns like a fire, He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You've offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his own hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else than his patience that you did not go to hell last night that you were allowed to wake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there's no other reason to be given why you've not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. No other reason to be given why you've not gone to hell since you sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. And he goes on, and uh, just towards the end here, he says, you have no interest in any mediator. And nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing you've ever done, nothing you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. And that mention of a mediator is important because Edwards is going to transition from this into talking about the fact that the only way to be saved from God's wrath is through the Son of God who bore that wrath on the cross. And uh, so he talks here about, the through Christ, the door of mercy has been thrown open. Therefore, at the end, therefore let everyone that is out of Christ awake and fly from the wrath to come. And come, of course, to Christ. And so that's the theme of Edward's famous sermon. It was published and uh, had a great, great impact and certainly associated with, Sinners uh, certainly associated with the Great Awakening. Uh, One just minor comment about Jonathan Edwards. Uh, It used to be that church historians and others who studied the life of Jonathan Edwards, and this is kind of a common misconception, it used to be that people thought that Edwards did nothing more than read his sermons, and that perhaps his sermons were kind of monotone and not very interesting to listen to. Uh, But new research has been done into Edwards' preaching style and there's good reason to believe that Edwards was actually not that type of preacher but was actually a very dynamic preacher in the way that he presented. Very articulate, very intelligent, and very passionate in the way that he presented his sermons. And probably became even more passionate in his preaching after he met George Whitfield and saw the effect of Whitfield's passionate preaching. Uh, so this idea that Edwards was just this monotone, boring guy to listen to, talking about the fact that you might go to hell tonight, um, that, that's not an accurate understanding or representation of the actual way in which Jonathan Edwards preached. So he, he's not an oratician of the sa- or an orator of the same level as George Whitfield. Whitfield is in a league kind of by himself. But to to say that Jonathan Edwards was nothing more than a guy who put his head down in his notes and read for an hour and a half while people sat in uncomfortable pews and wanted to go eat lunch is an unfair way of mischaracterizing uh, Jonathan Edwards' preaching. All right. As I discussed there in answer to Cameron's question, Edwards' preaching also focused on heaven and love, not just fire and brimstone. The Great Awakening... Interestingly enough, the Great Awakening was met with resistance from conservative congregationalist pastors because of the swoonings and outcries that accompanied it. So there's this powerful preaching going on. People are falling under serious conviction, and as a result of that serious conviction, they are expressing emotions. So there are people who are crying, people who are in some cases crying out, In the middle of sermons, you know, have mercy on me. There's people even who are coming under such severe conviction that they're fainting in the middle of some of these uh, church services. This causes the older, more conservative Puritan generation to be very skeptical of what's happening because they don't like all of this display of emotion in church. As a result, Jonathan Edwards is forced to defend this Great Awakening. So the old light Presbyterians, which is a way of referring to those who didn't like the Great Awakening, and then you have the new light Presbyterians who are the supporters of it. Edwards is the one who has to defend the Great Awakening. And how does Edward defend it? Well, he initially gives a lecture at Yale, uh, actually just a few months after he preached Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. On how to identify the distinguishing marks of a true work of the Holy Spirit, uh, because a revival, we would say, you know, is a, is a work of the Holy Spirit. A true revival is. So, how can you tell a true revival from a false revival? And uh, this becomes published as a pamphlet. It's one of really one of the most important things that Edwards writes, called uh, the distinguishing marks of a true work of the Holy Spirit. It comes out of 1 John four and edwards makes the case that emotions are not a sign of true revival necessarily in other words emotions neither prove nor disprove the legitimacy of a revival because first corinthians 7 right paul says there is worldly sorrow and there is godly sorrow sorrow doesn't prove the legitimacy of the response Emotions don't prove the legitimacy of the response. What is it that proves the legitimacy of the response? Well, worldly sorrow leads to no change in behavior. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance is seen in a change of life. And so Edwards defends the awakening by saying, Look, yeah, there might be a lot of excess. There might be fake conversions. There might be false emotions here. But the emotions, presence of, lack of, absence of, in either case, it doesn't prove or disprove the legitimacy of what's happening. What we need to do is wait and see what the effects of this are over the long term. Because fruit, spiritual fruit, is what what legitimizes a true work of the Holy Spirit. So this leads to them his preaching on the religious affections in which he continues to detail the distinguishing marks of true conversion versus false conversion. And here's what he says. How do we know genuine conversion? Christian practice is the sign of signs. It is the great evidence which confirms and crowns all other signs of godliness. Uh, Edwards, by the way, had a few other marks of a genuine revival out of 1 John 4. And you can read that distinguishing marks on CCEL if you want. Uh, This is just kind of a fun little interesting note. The upcoming book on the charismatic movement, the book that's called Strange Fire, has two chapters essentially dedicated to Jonathan Edwards' uh, genuine marks, distinguishing marks of a true work of the Spirit. Uh, which are applied to both the First Great Awakening and then, by comparison, applied to the Pentecostal and second and third waves of the Charismatic Movement, because many in the Charismatic Movement claim that the Charismatic Movement represents the Fourth Great Awakening, and so this is a response to that. But, in any case, his, his, his main point is that, ultimately, the way that you test for genuine conversion is in a life that has been changed. So there is one grace of the Spirit of God, but that Christian practice is the most proper evidence of the truth of it. In other words, we are saved by grace, but then the transformed life is the evidence that we genuinely have been saved. Practice is the proper proof of trust and saving knowledge of God. As appears by what the Apostles already mentioned, hereby we know that we know him, that we keep his commandments. Again, out of 1 John. So this is very similar to what his grandfather Solomon Stoddard had preached. How do you know if you're truly saved? Look at your life. It's not about a momentary decision. It's about a lifestyle and patterns of life that demonstrate godly desires, desires that have been put there clearly by a supernatural source as the Spirit has done His regenerative work.